Okay, well, let's pause for prayer, and then we'll pick up. Father, we do thank you for the work of Christ on the cross. Thank you for redeeming us. Pray that you'll help us in our study tonight of the minor prophets. For in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now, I can't remember since we met last week. Had we... We had, we got past Micah. Yeah, we were, uh... I, I have uh, some highlights of names. Yeah, I okay. think that's where we were. Okay, well, let's pick up with the back exam. Let's look at the title and authorship. Like with all the books in the Minor Prophets, when it says this is the book of so-and-so, that's the author. So that serves as the title as well for the book. Uh, we don't know much about them. Uh, there's, a, there's an interesting Jewish tradition that has him as the son of a Shunammite woman who lived in the ninth century. This is usually connected with 2 Kings 4.16. Now here's the interesting, can I call it legend? Because it is a legend. Another legend is found in the apocryphal work, Bell and the Dragon. Now the book sounds like a science fiction sort of thing, just from the very beginning. But they had that even before the time of Christ. So according to verses 33 to 39, an angel transports the package who is carrying food to feed Daniel while he was in the lion's den. Well, we don't have any evidence of that from biblical account. So it seems unlikely. Let me back. May I say, telling the dragon isn't an apocryphal work. There's really no reason for us to put any dependence on this. So, it, from my understanding, the whole book, Bell and the Dragon, is a little hokey. I've read it in years gone by, and it's, it's pretty far out there. So, uh, I don't want to get carried away on it, though, but there's some, there's some other interesting apocryphal books. The key thing is, they're not part of the Protestant Bible. They are in the Roman Catholic Bible, yes. though. And there's some real iffy things. And further, that apocryphal, those apocryphal books, they were never made canonical until 1546 A.D. at the Council of Trent. I mean, that takes a... How does it take a book that long to become canonical? Well... How many books in your pocket book? I think 14. 14, yeah, that's right. Now, were, you, were you Catholic, Ken? I'm were, sorry? Were you Catholic? No. Oh, you just have Catholic friends. I had Catholic friends. Okay. <laughs> Don't we all? My father was Catholic. Oh, okay. Grew up Catholic. Okay. Yeah, we had family members who were Catholic. Uh, and it was a delight to see one of them come to Christ. Yeah. Yeah, you could take the Catholic Bible and show them the Romans wrote pretty clearly. So somebody can be saved with it. It's the extra stuff yeah. that they have there that's the problem. Those 14 extra books. Anyway, you can look high and low, but you will not find it in your Bible. Hallelujah. 
So let's look at this patent setting. Uh, this book has reference to the Babylonians in 1.6. It suggests that the book was written in the 7th century BC. The conditions described in 1.2-4 reflect a period of corruption and apostasy. The social and moral wickedness described by the prophets fits the time period of Jehoiakim reign. Rather than that of the godly reign of Josiah who preceded him. So most will date the book about 609 BC. Uh, these dates probably don't stick with you like they stick with me. Uh, just because it's in a completely different venue than you're used to thinking. So, you know, I was an Old Testament major. Uh, my emphasis started when I was in my first master's program and continued in my second and then in my doctorate. So these things, you know, I may sometimes use some words just kind of roll out. Well, they're because of a certain field I was in. And so if I do say something that you don't understand, just ask me because I can ex usually explain it. If I can't, I will find out and explain to you next week. So let's look at the message here. Habakkuk is a dialogue between the prophet and his God. Habakkuk wrestles with how God is at work in the midst of a wicked covenant nation. In fact, look at chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Say one. Yeah, chapter one. Uh, yeah, verses two to four. How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen, or cry out to you violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. There, there is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed, and justice never prevails. I get the picture here. He's describing the nation of Judah. This is God's holy nation. They're, they're wicked. They don't care about the law. That's why true justice doesn't prevail. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. Well, that's right within God's covenant nation. So he's bothered by that. And so God responds to him. Uh, look at verse 5. Look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed. For I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe, even if you were told. I am raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people. By the way, these descriptions of ruthless and impetuous, these are terms that are sometimes used with ungodly people. And this is with idolaters. These sweep across the whole earth to seize dwelling places, not their own. They are feared and dreaded people. They are a law to themselves and promote their own honor. 
Their horses are swifter than leopards, fiercer than wolves at dusk. Their cavalry gallops headlong, their horsemen come from afar. They fly like a vulture swooping to devour. They all come bent on violence. Their hordes advance like a desert wind and gather prisoners like sand. They deride kings and scoff at rulers. They laugh at all fortified cities. They build earthen ramps and capture them. Then they sweep past like the wind and go on, guilty men whose own strength is their God. And I don't think we think about it quite as much. But I remember when I was a kid, we had this real fear of the USSR. Um, I can remember, maybe it was because of World War II or whatever, but there were people who actually had these like bomb shelters in their basement. And uh, you know, we we're afraid that the Russians, the USSR, was going to take us over. Now we were, we equipped ourselves well so we could withstand that. But I think Khrushchev was right. Our ruination would be from within. And that's exactly what we see going on today. Uh, you all probably realize it, but we are a wicked nation. Uh, probably, I have a friend from England who says, they're a little bit more sophisticated with their abortions. They will not do third trimester abortions. We're one of the worst countries in the world because we will do that. Not sure others do it, but we promote it. So, and you look at the increase of um, homosexuality under uh, your president, my president, I have to say, that may become legal. Or it has in some states, hasn't it? Yes, it has. But I suspect this is going to grow. Obama's board on a federal level. Yep. So, you know, what faces? But we need to recognize that within our country, we'll, we will be the remnant. There may be a day when we will be persecuted. In fact, I can see that more now than ever. So, what we feared in the Russians, we're becoming. So maybe we're that wicked nation, but we don't understand it because we're within. But can you imagine smaller places that would be afraid of us? There are places like that. Uh, and yet the fear that they have is uh, terrible. You know, to me, I think now the nation that scares me the worst is China. Fortunately, uh, we're indebted to them, and, and they want their money back. So I, I think we could stay around for a while. They need our goods. But the point is, is you know, that would be a fearsome nation. And if they took something over, that'd be scary. Now you probably have seen pictures of the North Koreans, how ruthless they are. Well, that's the type of thing the Babylonians were. And uh, they were idolaters. 
And so Habakkuk says to God, he looks around and he can't believe how wicked the nations become. And God says in verse 5, look at the nations, in particular look at Babylon. I'm raising them up against your own people who you think are wicked. Well, that's not good news. So Habakkuk complains a second time. Oh Lord, are you not from everlasting, my God, my Holy One? We will not die. Oh Lord, you have appointed them to execute judgment. Oh Rock, you have ordained them to punish. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. By the way, I would say that God in his omniscience, he does see evil. I think what he's saying is that God can't look approvingly on evil. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? The treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? That is, the Babylonians swallowing up Israel who's more righteous than them. But yet it still happens. Well, he's perplexed. You have made men like fish in the sea, like sea creatures that have no ruler. The wicked foe pulls all of them up with hooks. He catches them in his net. And he goes on. So what does Habakkuk do? He's perplexed by it all. His own nation's going to be taken over by the Babylonians. But yet he knows the Babylonians are wicked. And yet God is approving them coming. So here, what does he do? He goes back to his post. I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he says to me and what answer I am to give his complaint. And then the Lord replies, write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets. So the revelation awaits an appointed time. Now what he tells him, he says in verse 4, See, he, that is the Babylonians, are puffed up. Their desires are not upright, but the righteous, that is God's redeemed people, will live by faith. It's an expression that they came to Christ by faith, but they also live by that faith. They persevere. And he continues on, but my point is, is even with this coming, God's saying, I'm going to take care of my people. So no matter what happens with our country, God's going to take care of his people. He always has. It may not be in the style we like. You know, we may have to be in prison. But somehow, God will take care of us. And even if we die, He's taking care of us by taking us home to glory. Uh, you know, it's like I always tell my seminary classes. I'm ready to die. I'm just not looking to get on the next train out of town. <laughs> so, uh, I think that's what we all think, though. But those are the things that God's people face. But God is always taking care of his elect. 
and that's got to be our confidence. We can't put it in our country because it's not there. We can't put it in any other country. It's not there. Uh, China's is as ruthless as anybody out there. Remember Tiananmen Square? How can we forget? But yet they've learned to tolerate with some forms of capitalism because they see it works. But they're not giving up their common government. So, uh, that's the world we live in. I do know from the time of Chinese house leaders I teach that uh, when they go to prison, they count it, they're, they're considered worthy to suffer for Christ. So, they have a different mindset. So they think uh, part of the test of Christianity is that somebody's willing to suffer for Christ. Well, I don't know that that's that bad mindset. I'm not looking forward to it myself, but it might be a purifying force. But God will take care of his people. I remember one, one of the men, he, uh, he'd just gotten out of prison Let's see, he was in prison twice. Let's see, the first time he was in prison, the second time he and his wife were both in prison. Of course, in different prisons. He gets released, I think, a day or two after his wife. But his wife, in that transition process, she dies. She'd gotten extremely sick in prison. Their conditions aren't that good. And so she dies. And he thanked God that his wife was worthy to suffer for Christ. Now, he did remarry, but uh, such as the case may be. I remember another Chinese house church leader who shared his testimony. He, he thanked God that his son had been recently in prison because he was considered worthy of representing Christ. Now, I have to admit, I don't know that I'm there. <laughs> I told the guys, I don't know that I'm ready for that. <laughs> but that's the way the circumstances change. And we will adapt with the times. Just because we are God's people. And he will make provisions for us. That's what Habakkuk is learning here. And God tells him, in the long run, he is going to take care of Israel. So in the future, they will be in the millennial kingdom. But they're going to suffer before that. And we might see them suffer greatly in our lifetime because the whole world's against them. So that's the world he lived in. So let me encourage you with that because that is a positive thing. Chapter 3, he expresses his prayer and he reflects his hope in God. Notice he uh, concludes this. Verse 18, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The Sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my, he makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to go on the heights. So he's saying God will take care of him. 
Well, as I go through the message, I'll read it more fully here, but I've given you a synopsis of the book. To me, this is one of the most practical books in the Bible because I can identify with Habakkuk, and I think all of us can. So God reassures, reassures the problem, prophet that he will judge his nation through the Babylonians, and that the Babylonians would also be judged for their sinfulness. In the final analysis, the message of the book is that the sovereign Lord carries out his acts of judgment in a manner that is consistent with his might and his will. But, he also takes care of his own in the midst of this and will ultimately deliver them. This should produce in the heart of every genuine believer a resolve to be loyal to the Lord, who will establish righteousness on the earth by, by us persevering in the faith. So that produced faith in Habakkuk's heart, and it should in ours as well. Well, that's Habakkuk. Now, are there any questions on that? Okay, well, let's move on to Zephaniah. <coughs> Notice the name once again, Zephaniah. That's the title of the book. He's also the author. His name means Yahweh, the Lord Hides. It's used three times in the Old Testament. Beyond the information in this superscription, we know little about Zephaniah. In 1-1, its ancestry is traced back four generations to Hezekiah, and that is unique among the prophets. This implies he was a man of providence and even of loyalty. As the great-great-grandson of Hezekiah, the king of Judah, Zephaniah was the only known prophet with such high standing. He was thus a distant relative of King Josiah, in whose reign he prophesied. Also, the prophet may have been a resident of Jerusalem because his words from this place and from his familiar and his familiarity with the city. Well, let's look at the date of the book. That's on the next page. Um, since one once states that Zephaniah delivered his prophecy during the reign of Josiah. He wrote sometime between 640 and 609 B.C. Since Zephaniah condemned the idolatrous practices of the nations that were eradicated by Josiah's reforms in 621 B.C., his prophecies must have been delivered prior to this. If his message just had an influence on King Josiah, then this would have been written early in Josiah's reign. In any event, the book is somewhere between 640 to 625 B.C. Uh, so that would be the date of the book. But let's look at the message. This is another short book in the Minor Prophets. Most of them are pretty short. But, uh, there's some that are really short. I think Obadiah is the shortest. It has only 21 verses. But the Zephaniah does have three chapters, so it's some more substance than Obadiah. Well, notice the message. Because of Judah's religious syncretism... What, what does that mean? That's a good question. <laughs> I just thought about that. That means they combined... It would be like 
combining
there were a lot of Presbyterians like us too, but there's more Catholics. And I remember our friends claimed their parents did not, my Catholic friends' parents did not want them playing with me. Because Pope, who speaks on behalf of Peter, said they should only play with Catholic kids. Now they were pretty disobedient though. And I was pretty disobedient too. That's why we could hook up. Because we were just unsafe wretches. So that type of combination is not true syncretism because, you know, it's an unregenerate guilt to start with. But once you get a church that claims that they have a regenerate church membership to combine with something that does not claim that, that is true syncretism. But there's, there's a lot of churches, even Baptist churches. The one I used to go to before in the city, they had these ecumenical services. Oh, absolutely. You know. Yep. No, there's a lot of Baptists who partake in that. Yes. I didn't think it was right, neither did my wife. So. Well, I think you have to look at it. You're looking at the church. To me, the issue is not a Baptist church. It's, it's the principles that undergird that. Uh, yes. You know, my son Bob, he's trained at a Baptist seminary. They go to a church that doesn't have any, I think it's Christ Church of the Valley, but beliefs like us. So that's really not a problem. Yeah. So I'm talking about churches like your church, like Inner City, that are looking to have a regenerate membership. And those are the principles we stand by. And it's those principles that count, not the name. So I've thought a lot about this with with our kids because they've all, I mean, a couple of them gone their own different ways. And, you know, to me, you know, it seems like as long as they're going to a church that stresses a regenerate membership and does believe in, you know, priesthood of the believers and things like that, I'm fine with it. Probably if we ever retired in Arizona, we'd, we'd more than likely go to church with my son tough to fit into a 2,000 member church, but he's done it and I didn't think we could. At that point, we're probably going along for the ride. It's really about your grandchildren. As <laughs> 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 your grandparents, you know that. <laughs> yeah. It's all about the grandchildren. <laughs> yeah, we're losing members because of grandchildren. We're <laughs> <laughs> moving down to Florida. <laughs> well, by the way, I'm not planning on retiring. Give it up. <laughs> but if I had my wishes in life than I ever could, that's where we'd go. Arizona? Mm-hmm. I don't want to get into a big discussion, but I'm not real fond of Arizona. Well. My brother lived out there until he died. My sister-in-law still lives out there. Okay. So, it's not that I haven't experienced it, because I have. Okay. Yeah, they, they're experiencing it, and they love it. <laughs> Some people do. Yeah. My brother always loved it. Yeah, and I think, well, once, I think once you become like a police officer or something, you're pretty much tied to the community. Yep. And I think it changes the landscape for you. And whatever else I can see with police officers, they really do have this uh, fraternal order mm-hmm. that's really strong. So there's been a few police officers killed out there. Yep. 
And you know, I tell you, little Mark people, they were put away in prison. But if they ever get out, they'll get taken out. Because yeah. they all know. So, that type of bonding, I don't think we really fully understand. Sure. So, I don't understand it. The only bond that counts to me is the one with my wife and my local church. <laughs> so, those are the primary things in life. But I think in his context, I can see why they adapt more readily. But it's wicked out there. I mean, it's like a lot like California. In fact, you have a lot of people who want to live in California and can't go there, so they live in Arizona. So the drug rates are really high. Uh, heroin and meth are two major drugs. And he's a cop in Scottsdale. Although it's an extremely affluent area, it's really high as far as drugs go because rich people get them and their kids get them. So it's become really, you know, Allen Park is an easy place to be in compared to Scottsdale. So it's, it's just a tougher place. But I think once he became a police officer, you know, whether the police officer from another city like Glendale or even down in Surprise where he lives, there's just a bonding that goes on there. And I think they picked it up. And plus, their kids are growing up there. <coughs> and that really has a tendency to see this in them. Sure. So it's, but anyway, I understand what goes on. If I was going to retire, though, and I'm not planning on it, that's where I'd be. So it's, see, I don't like snow. It's good for one day of the year. <laughs> and that's it. Okay, well. Anyway, let's uh, take a look here at this message. So we're over. So everybody's clear about the syncretism. My goal is not to be unclear, but to be clear. Much of Zephaniah's work focuses on the coming of the day of the Lord. Now, we went through that when we went through Joel. Remember, I said the day of the Lord is a prophesied future time period where God will show his absolute sovereign control by fulfilling a prophecy, whether that be judgment or salvation, but God's demonstrating his control visibly. That's the day of the Lord. Well, much of this relates to a future kingdom. Uh, some of it relates to Judah at that time. But Babylon becomes a symbol of a future kingdom, picturing the future day of the Lord. The period that we would refer to as the tribulation and his return in the millennial kingdom, that's the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord in his day, that already passed. But the future one will be the tribulation and it will be the millennial kingdom. So that's what we'd be looking for with the day of the Lord. So, this, now that's probably, I mean, since you're quite familiar a little bit with those prophecies, uh, you, you all are familiar with the tribulation. And, uh, there'll be a time period of suffering. It's the one where the church will be 
raptured out of. And so there will be this unmitigated unleashing of God's wrath. At the end of it, Israel, all Israel will be saved. And they will say, at the end of the tribulation, blessed is he, that is Jesus, who comes in the name of the Lord. And they will be redeemed. And they will go in and populate the kingdom. Now, those who live through, like the Jews, they will not get glorified with bodies. We will. So we'll live in the kingdom with glorified bodies, meaning that we will not no longer have a desire to sin. Our bodies will be a perfect creation. Our minds will be purified. So that's the advantage. So at that point, we will not have to worry about struggling with sin. But all those who are born during the kingdom, they will be born with a sin nature because the parents uh, who are responsible for their birth, they still would have been sinners. And so they will have to go through the kingdom and they will be tested to come to faith. But if they don't, King Jesus will quickly judge them in full righteousness. And uh, that will be the one reign when things will be right. You don't have to worry about the Supreme Court. Jesus will judge with all the facts that he needs and it will be according to his justice. And it will always be right. So, anyway, that's the day of the Lord for us. It's not going to be 1221, right? What's that? <laughs> <laughs> 1221, 2012. That's, that's uh, the apocalypse according to the, the main the main calendars that were there. Okay, I didn't realize that. Yeah, it's I think my wife said something. That's my daughter probably said something. She's yeah. worried about that stuff. <laughs> well, the guy that lives behind me is all worried about it. So, well, why are you working on your lawn? He's on the related block of it. So, why are you doing that? <laughs> Well, Amy, when she has a question about that stuff, she comes to me. <laughs> yeah. I said, Amy, all that counts is you're right with God. And this is a bunch of nonsense. Of course it is. Uh, nobody knows when Christ will return. They can say it, but then they'd be God. Yeah. Hell is it, Harry. And uh, Harold Camping didn't do a very good job, did they? They did not. It's really a disgrace, the biblical Christianity. It is. More scorn has been heaped on because of that stuff. So it's, it's a bunch of nonsense. You know, it's all very easy, too. Jesus said, oh man, that was the hour. Exactly right. So, how can some man come along and say he knows the hour? Yep. <laughs> so, anyway, but, you know, she, fortunately, she has those, if she has those questions, she'll usually come to me. And I'm gentle, but I'm candid with my daughter. Uh, sure. I don't sugarcoat anything. But I, I mean, I, I always do it very kindly, though. And even when I do it kindly, she can sometimes misunderstand me. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but you're, but you're, but you're, you're a dad. I am. <laughs> I know exactly what you're saying. Yeah. <laughs> so, but I try to do with the love of Jesus on my face. You know, I freshen up, I use the other one, so I'm trying to be as acceptable as I can. 
So anyway, for those living in Zephaniah's day, the judgment from Babylon was inevitable, though in the midst of judgment, God would take care of genuine worshipers. Uh, that's what he's always done. So in brief, that's the message in Zephaniah. Now, any questions on that? I could go much longer, but I need to resist my urges since we lost last week. So let's go on a Haggai. The author of the book is Haggai. His name means Bestel. I had a seminary student years ago say, does that mean he was a party animal? <laughs> I said, I assume you're joking. <laughs> he said, yes. <laughs> this means they had different feasts, and they just, they were God-ordained feasts. And somebody named their son Festival because of Jewish feasts. So it's nothing more than that and nothing less. So this commemorates the feast that Israel would celebrate that God set up and required them to celebrate. You've heard of the Feast of Tabernacles? No. Uh, that's one of the big feasts. Uh, and so at that point, this prophet was named that by his parents, Festival. Okay, uh, let's look at the date and setting. Given the precise dates in this book, we can see that Haggai delivered his message preserved in this book in the span of 15 weeks during the second year of the reign of Darius I. Each of these messages was delivered in 520 B.C. And the book was possibly written in the same year. I hope you'll make a distinction. He could deliver the message and keep notes on it, but not actually put it in his book form. You know, for much as a few years later. But I think he had to keep records to do it accurately. So I would think there would be notes taken. But they haven't finalized in this specific book. That could have been right away, but that could take a little bit longer. And it would always be during the prophet's lifetime. Uh, look at Haggai chapter 1. And I want you to notice the dating of the book. You can see it internally. Look at chapter 1, verse 1. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet, etc. Notice, drop down to verse 15. On the 24th day of the sixth month, in the second year of King Darius. Now notice, this is still the sixth month, and it's still the second year of Darius. This is just on the 24th. So this is 23 days later. Notice further, look in chapter 2 at verse 1. On the 21st day of the 7th month, uh, 
Notice this is one month later. Uh, well, not one full month, pretty close to the full month. The one was on the 24th, this is on the 21st. <coughs> but notice, this is approximately one month later. Drop down to 2.10. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius. So notice, this is two months later. It's still the second year of Darius. Drop down to verse uh, 20, I believe. Yeah, 2.20. The word of the Lord came to Haggai a second time on the 24th day of the month. This is the same day as what we have in chapter 2, verse 10. They were both on the 24th day. He gets one message earlier and another message later on the same day. So, that's why I say it looks like these messages were given uh, 15 weeks apart. Not that long a time gap between the first one and the last one. So, look at when these correspond to our years. The first one on the August 29th, the second September 21, the next one October 17th, and the next one would be December 18th, uh, the very month we're in. So, it's about this time of the year when the last message was given, but it's given 520 years before Christ. So that's the date. Now, according to Jeremiah 25, 11 and 12, the nation Judah had been sent into captivity for their disobedience. Let me briefly give you a little bit of key history about Judah's deportation to Babylon. Uh, you may recall, you may have heard, you may not have. But because of Israel's disobedience, God brought the Babylonians down. What Habakkuk was talking about? They defeat the nation. And what they do is they take captive Babylon. When they take captive Babylon, it was a common practice in the ancient Near East with, with major nations. They go in they ransack a nation, but they would keep the educated, the higher class, and they would take them back to their to their nation, and they would integrate them into society. You're familiar with Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were from affluent, educated families. Uh, they were taken when they were pretty young, and they were taken and are integrated in the key posts in the Babylonian nation. Well, that's how you do it. Get smart people controlling things. And hopefully along the line, you get their commitment. By the way, for, for years, America's always attracted the best doctors in the world. They could come here. They could actually prosper with their medical practice. Now, it'll be interesting in 10, 15 years to see if that's still happening. I've read some things. It's already stopping or slowing down because of Obamacare. I know a couple of doctors who are planning on retiring. They're old enough. They can get teaching positions at universities. But because of all the demands, 
They were going to get out of the practice. That's how you lose good doctors. The one advantage of capitalism, when it comes to things like scientists, doctors, it attracts the best. And then when you dampen that, and at this point we are cursed. There's no turning back. At least I don't see it. I do see there's some court injunctions. Hopefully God would work a miracle here. But I don't think we have any special privileges with God on this. Uh, if he wouldn't do it for his chosen nation, why would he do stuff like that for us? So, but, but hopefully that would, would happen, but it probably will not. Well, the medical facilities will go down. I'm glad I'm 63. It's my children and grandchildren I feel bad for. But that's such the way it is. Well, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, what they would do is they'd capture people and take the cream of the crop and integrate them into their, in their culture, into higher positions. And that's how Daniel, uh, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were taken to Babylon. And there were other people like that. So they had the upper class from Israel. Well, what happened is when Babylon uh, tore down the temple in 605 B.C. Uh, I'm sorry, it's 586 B.C., but before they toppled that in 586 B.C., there were two other incursions into Israel, and the Babylonians took captives each time. But because the, the Jews are a rebellious nation, they did not submit with the first one in 605 B.C. The second one in 597 B.C., they rebelled again from that, and they were able to stay off the forces of the Babylonians. But in 586, that's when the Babylonians came down. They uh, tore down the temple. They took the precious metal back to Babylon. And the wood stuff, they would have burned up. Well, that's 586 B.C. That's when they take their largest group of captives back to Babylon. So the nation of Jude is just in shambles at this point. So those are the three de deportations. Now what happens, Israel's going to be in captivity for 70 years. God prophesied it would be 70 years. Technically it's 67, the number 70 is a rounded off number. And then he's going to return the Jews to the land. Well that starts under the reign of Cyrus. So in 536 B.C., that's when the last group come back to Judah. And they laid the foundation for the temple. They were commanded to do that. So it's very important to lay the foundation. But they were also supposed to rebuild the temple. They did not do that. They laid the foundation in 536 B.C. And the temple complex just stays dormant for 16 years. It's in 520 B.C., they're able to start rebuilding. And uh, what's significant with that rebuilding, when you think about it, if you, if you purchase land and laid a foundation for a house, 
Would you let that sit for 16 years and you laid the foundation? I don't think I would. Uh, most people who do that and put that type of expenditure, expenditure out, they're going to look to complete it. But they did not. And they're held accountable for that. This is when Haggai comes on the scene. They're doting in the 16 years. They're now at the end of that period. But they still don't want to build the temple. So here God raises up Haggai. And he's going to challenge them about this. So let's drop down to the message. Haggai wrote to encourage Judah by giving a prophetic message about the Lord's future program for the overthrowing of the nations and the glory of Judah with a special emphasis on the temple and the honor of the Davidic dynasty to forsake their indifference to the God of the covenant and to obey the Lord which primarily included rebuilding the temple. Let's look at a few things in here in Haggai 1. Look at verses 5 to 6. In fact, let's start with verse 2. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say, the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. Now understand, it's been laying dormant. The foundation's been there for 16 years. And it's still not time for the Lord's house to be built. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? It does seem to reflect that there were some people, probably people out there once, who actually had this nice wood paneling. And uh, yet, God's house was still ruined. So that's the challenge. You've got your own nice houses, but my house is not built. What are your priorities? That's the point. Uh, look at verse 5. Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but have harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. And what he's saying in the context, consider your priorities. What's been important to you? My house or your house? And that's the issue. Well, he's got a few th more things to say about that that we'll need to look at. But I probably ought to save that for next week because we do want to see what God says. And this is positive. This is one book where the nation of Judah actually listens to God. So this is rare. And once this is over, they'll be back to the old ways. So... Anyway, we're out of time now, so we'll just go ahead and stop.